Five days after the attacks of September 11, 2001, President Bush stood on the White House lawn and called the military to action, where he declared a, quote, crusade against terrorism. Government spokesmen after this scrambled to try to limit the damage from this offhand remark, but it was too late. By that time, newspapers throughout the Muslim world were already full of references to medieval knights sacking Jerusalem and burning down mosques and saying, here it comes again. This was particularly unfortunate because the president had tried to assure Muslims from the very beginning that the war on terror was not a war on Islam. Immediately after the attacks, in fact, he made a famous statement that prayers were being said in English, Arabic, and Hebrew, which offended a lot of other people who spoke other languages who were also praying for the victims. But the key point is he wanted it to make clear that this was not a war that was going to divide Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Well, the U.S. diplomats tried to explain that crusade didn't necessarily mean a religious war, and there's some justification to this, because in English, we use that word crusade for a lot of things. We have crusades against cancer or crusades against poverty. And some people might know that the word crusade comes from the same root as cross. In English, the similarity between the two words is not that obvious. In Arabic, however, that language that the president had mentioned, trying to win favor with the Muslims, the word crusade literally means war of the cross. It's the same word, harb salibia, and has never been used for anything but a Christian religious war against Islam. By way of comparison, try to imagine a term that is very loaded in the Western world, and that is jihad. Now, any Muslim scholar can tell you that the word jihad uh, comes from effort and refers to a supreme effort. And in fact, the Prophet Muhammad told us that the greatest jihad is within yourself, struggling with your own temptations and your own faults. And in fact, this word jihad is used more often than not to refer to that kind of struggle for good behavior, for good beliefs, much more often than it is used for a war. However, the image in the West is quite different. So you can imagine, uh, let's say, a leader of a Muslim country standing up and saying he's sending troops to America and declaring a new jihad. Well, he may mean that they're going over there on an effort to help uh, do some humanitarian mission. But you can bet the way that the American press is going to respond to that is going to be very different. So that's about the equivalent of what President Bush has done here. So, newspapers throughout the Muslim world reported the fact that President Bush had called for a new Christian religious war. He had called for a renewal of the Crusades and so on. Well, one lesson from this is it helps to have people who actually know the language of the countries you're dealing with, which is something our country is very reluctant to acknowledge. But it also shows us here how something that may be a very distant memory for Western Christians is very much alive in the Muslim world. So the Crusades, this series of events that is seen so differently in the Muslim world from the West, is our subject today. So please stay tuned. All right. 
right, welcome back. Now, before we begin, I must mention in our previous episode where I talked about Neil deGrasse Tyson, I said I expected to receive a lot of hate mail from fans of Dr. Tyson. And in fact, all the mail that I received was very positive. And in fact, uh, many listeners brought up some other interesting aspects of Al-Ghazali and the Muslim science of the period that were very helpful. So I certainly appreciate your comments uh, and I appreciate all that mail. So please uh, keep them coming. But in any case, to return to the Crusades, this will be the first of several episodes that we're going to do on this really critical period of history. And the Crusades are important for a lot of reasons particularly reasons in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, that we tend not to think about so much uh, from a Western perspective. So we want to give this subject its due, make sure we spend sufficient time on it, and look at what the real impact is. Now, the bottom line is that these series of events, and the Crusades are a series of wars over several centuries, really mark a turning point in Muslim history and in the history of relations between Islam and the West. Now, of course, there's been a lot of turning points, and it's not like these came out of nowhere. It's been a gradual process. But if we want to look at probably the biggest landmark, the place where the biggest change occurs, it's during this series of wars, of invasions that go on. And why is that? Well, up to this point, we've been talking about a certain narrative that has sort of dominated Islamic civilization, and that's this idea of Dar al-Islam, or Dar al-Salam, the domain of Islam, or the domain of peace, which has been continuously growing and expanding and covering up more and more of the world's surface until, of course, uh, the ultimate aim is that one day the whole world will become the domain of Islam, the domain of peace, where God is worshipped. Now that has not only been the doctrine, but as we've seen, the historical events have pretty much uh, supported that, have borne that out, particularly at the beginning when we saw these rapid Muslim conquests, as we always say, from Spain to the borders of India, and we saw the growth of the largest empires, the most prosperous empires the world had seen. This definitely seemed to be the fulfillment of what people believe was God's will, God's ultimate plan. And things have been rough for the past uh, couple of centuries, the past few episodes. We've seen that. There's been a lot of disunity, a lot of internal fighting. There's even been some losses, particularly in Spain. That's where we're really seeing the Muslim community uh, being beaten back by the Christian invaders. But for the most part, uh, things seem to be going according to plan or at least where they haven't been, where there have been problems, this could always be explained from an internal perspective. So we had this great caliphate uh, for centuries, but as we've seen, the Abbasid caliphate has become weak, it's starting to disintegrate, so uprises this Shiite Fatimid caliphate with a, a different sect, a different creed, saying, okay, no, we're going to do it right. And in the east, we see the emergence of these vehemently Sunni Turks who are going to come in essentially believing that they are saving the Abbasid Caliphate, that they're saving the Muslim world. And I mean, there's some justification to this. They really reestablish a lot of territory and a lot of stability. So it's easy to see the world progressing in this general forward progress leading towards the dominance of Dar al-Islam. 
And that's very important because if you really believe that you're the, the dominant power that has inherited everything, you can afford to be very benevolent, very tolerant, and very kind. Now, of course, a lot of great powers throughout history have not done that. They've been incredibly cruel. But if you believe that you're ultimately responsible not just to conquer the world for your ethnic group, but to bring this truth, this message of peace to the entire world, then you can afford to, and it's probably a good idea to be tolerant and kind to the other people within your domain, you know, to help them along. I mean, the Jews, the Christians, I mean, they understand God, but maybe they don't understand it exactly the way we do, and you can show a lot of tolerance to them. And realizing that you're essentially going to be responsible for all the world, including its science, its economy, and everything that goes with that, uh, you definitely have a responsibility to shepherd those things. So we see as long as this vision is out there, the idea that the Muslim world should be the leader in knowledge and science and exploration and tolerance and culture, it all fits into one neat pattern. And this, of course, is where we get the title of our show here today, the Golden Age of Islam. It's very much that spirit, that idea, that philosophy that creates the Golden Age of Islam. Well, now we really get to the point in history where that narrative is clearly not being played out. Yeah, there have been some problems, some setbacks, but now we're talking about a full-scale invasion, not just on the periphery, but to the heart of the Muslim world, to the Holy Land. Uh, outside armies are going to come in and establish kingdoms in Palestine, Syria, Jordan today, right in the heart of not only the, the Muslim world, but of this historical uh, lineage. This is where the Umayyad Caliphate was based. And, you know, I tended to view these crusader kingdoms, which are set up and last for a few centuries, as sort of these temporary things, like a, a bridgehead. They go there, they set up this kingdom, but they're being attacked, and eventually they lose. But it wasn't really until I traveled to these areas, and you have to really walk through Jordan and Palestine to get an idea of how permanent these kingdoms were. I mean, they built huge castles. I mean, monstrous medieval castles that dominate the landscape. And you go to a place like Jordan, and these castles are on basically every major hilltop. And in fact, they're still used in movies today when they want to film a medieval movie. This is someplace you go to and use it as a stand-in for medieval Spain or France because so if you just think back 900 years, you can imagine that these were very powerful kingdoms that are dominating and transforming the landscape. And you don't build structures like that unless you expect to be there for a long time. This is a huge change to the balance of power, to the political map of the world, and it also deals a very large blow to the entire Muslim narrative of history. Because now we're not talking about Darul Islam spreading to all corners of the globe. I mean, of course, we could explain this temporary setback if it were just a brief thing. But when it goes on for centuries, when we continue to lose ground in Spain, eventually to the point that the Muslims are driven out, and this is going to lead to the thing I mention in every episode that sort of the culmination of this disaster is the arrival of the Mongols, which is going to be a little over a century after the first crusade begins. So it's in the middle of the crusades and they come in and just 
lay wanton damage to the Muslim world. I mean, the level of destruction that the Mongols reach, I mean, it's still today the worst in history. Everybody else is competing for second place. So this process, which goes on and really changes your way of thinking, we can honestly say is still going on to this day. And we have to look at the difference in time frame here. So the Prophet Muhammad dies in the year 632, and we have our first crusade in 1096. So we're talking uh, about four and a half centuries where we could arguably say that the idea of this golden age of Islam is in play, that the idea that Islam is constantly expanding and is the most powerful state and civilization on earth. And we're really stretching it if we go up to the arrival of that first crusade, because as we've seen, things were falling apart even before then. But from that point on, we really have a series of invasions and occupations that arguably most Muslim scholars, certainly most uh, Arab politicians would say, has continued ever since. Uh, so we had the Crusaders, we had the Mongols, but then we're going to get European colonialists, we'll have uh, French and British colonies, we'll have them dividing up the map, and they very much see this continuing to the U.S. military presence in the uh, Muslim world today, and many people would throw Israel in with that. And so we have a much longer period of time. It's more than twice as long of this idea of being on the defensive and so this is a major shift in the way you're thinking. And it's incredibly important because the fundamental doctrines, the philosophies of Islam are built in this era when things are good, when Dar al-Islam is expanding, when the Muslim state is growing and it's the strongest. It's, at the it's much harder to adapt that to what seems like a pretty permanent uh, defensive position. And this is really going to mess with the whole idea of the, the doctrines and philosophy and so forth and produce a lot of the ideas that we're struggling with today. Now, some sharp listeners out there may object to that description of history. They would say, well, what about the Turks, particularly the Ottoman Turks? I mean, during the Renaissance period, I mean, they actually were at Europe's doorstep and many people feared that they would take over all of Europe. And in fact, the Ottoman Sultan did appropriate the title of Khalif for himself. Now, from an objective point of view, this is probably very true. Uh, from an emotional point of view, from the idea of historical memory, which we know doesn't always track very well with the reality of history, uh, the Turks are seen as just another invader, particularly from the point of view of Arab Muslims today. I can tell an anecdote here without mentioning names, but I have a colleague who's a uh, distinguished professor of Arabic, and he's a, uh, from uh, an Arab country himself. And at one point, we were looking for a restaurant to go to in New York City, and someone suggested they knew a good Turkish restaurant. And he replied without hesitation, I would rather go to an Israeli restaurant. Now, trust me, this was not meant as praise for Israeli food. I'm sure he would rather have starved to death than to have gone to an Israeli restaurant. But what he was trying to say is that in his mind, uh, the Turks were no better than the other invaders. And so you'll often
often hear it described that way. Well, first it was the Crusaders, and then it was the Ottomans, and then the British, and the French, and then the Israelis, and now it's the Americans. And this is definitely the sort of historical narrative that Osama bin Laden or any modern-day jihadist would use. And this shift is going to affect really everything in Muslim philosophy. You know, if we have a philosophy of tolerance that is based on the idea of we're in charge, but we're going to be benevolent to these people who are under our care. We're going to protect them, and we're going to let them enjoy their freedoms. It's very different when those now become the people who are attacking you. And, of course, one of the key points in a Muslim worldview is the idea that Islam is the last monotheistic revelation, and it's the final, ultimate revelation, that uh, the Jews had a message, the Christians had a message, uh, they went wrong on a couple of points, but the important thing is they worship God, and then the Prophet Muhammad comes with the final revelation. And so it's easier to be tolerant to people who are still following the second or the first revelation, realizing that they're going to come along. And we, we see this definitely within Dar al-Islam. The rate of conversion is slow, but it's steady. More and more we're seeing the Muslim population grow and people converting. That's very different when you now have the second to last revelation showing up on your doorstep, slaughtering a lot of people, taking back territory, establishing kingdoms that they don't look like they ever intend to leave, and now you're having to deal with them essentially coming here with the avowed purpose of wiping you out. And so the people who make philosophy and theology and Islamic law for these type of conditions, they kind of have to make it up as they go. Now, they're going to look back on earlier models because the, particularly the early Islamic community was on the defensive from its enemies for periods of time. But trying to deal with this new kind of world where you're definitely on the defensive is something that's going to lead to a lot of different innovations and some of them get bad press in the Western world. So that is sort of the big picture. That is the shift that we're seeing going on, and we want to talk about that here in these episodes. But I also want to mention that there's really two levels to the Crusades. I mean, there's probably a lot more levels we could divide it in. But the first one is the one I just discussed. That's this big picture, the idea of a war between Christian Europe or the idea of Christendom, which is on a crusade to retake land back from Islam, and that's very much the big picture, and we don't want to ignore that because it is very real, and that is really the part that has colored the, the thinking on both sides. But beyond that macro perspective, there's a very definite micro perspective, and it has to do with all these castles that I've been talking about. So yes, these crusader kingdoms are established in the Middle East, and they last for about two centuries. But we tend to think of these as being like these, you know, beachheads that are fortified and they are, you know, fighting off the enemy at all costs and they're sort of isolated. But the reality is business goes on as usual. There is trade between these kingdoms and the Muslim kingdoms. There are political alliances, and this is what we'll find a lot of. Once these kingdoms are established, uh, there is constant warfare going on, but it's very often constant warfare that pits, let's say, a Christian kingdom with its Muslim allies against another Christian kingdom with its Muslim allies, a different set of Muslim allies. And in many cases, both sides seem more interested in using the other side 
side as leverage against their local and regional rivals. But the big thing, and this is really surprising when we think about it, is this becomes a place for cultural and intellectual exchange. Now, you wouldn't think that would be the case, but it does. And so in f when we talk about those gateways into Europe, the places from which Muslim science and philosophy and really the ancient Greek science and philosophy through Arabic travel back into Europe, of course, Spain is one of them. It's one of the most prominent ones. Uh, to some extent, uh, the Byzantine Empire is another one. But as strange as it seems to us, the Crusades become another one. And in fact, many European historians cite as one of the reasons for the Renaissance, the movement of Europe from this medieval, feudal uh, climate that it was in, in into this glorious renaissance that we talk about is actually people coming back from the crusades with knowledge with books with ideas that they absorb from their muslim neighbors when they were in the crusader states so it's sort of like on the one hand you have this big picture of enemies locked in this eternal struggle but on the small picture you have the idea of neighbors i mean you happen to be my neighbor so we're going to do business now this really isn't as contradictory as it sounds, and it really isn't as rosy as it sounds as well, because the fact is you can hate somebody and still do business with them. We find examples of this all over the world. One of the biggest producers of heroin in the world is the Taliban, which is an extremely conservative, ultra-conservative uh, Muslim group in Afghanistan, who, of course, they ban the use of any kind of drugs for their people. They would kill any of their people who use this stuff, but they are producing producing it billions of dollars worth of these illicit drugs that are making their ways to streets all over Europe in the United States. It's the idea of, okay, hey, we want to make money, you want the product, uh, we may hate your guts, but we're going to do business with you. And this is very common, and this is something that is very often lost when we look at big picture history. And that's why we can say, for many reasons, other than the obvious ones, it's the Crusades that really define east-west relations, Muslim-European, Muslim-Christian relations, really on up into our day. So where to begin in this discussion of the Crusades? Well, most of the historical work out there and probably most of the things that you've seen over the years deal with it from a very European perspective. It's very much about the power struggles in Europe, particularly between the Pope and the various kings. But the Crusades become a good way to get power if you need it, to demonstrate loyalty if you need it, to get someone out of the way if you don't want them around. Uh, so if we have a prince who we don't necessarily want in our kingdom, we send them off on a crusade. Or if we have a king in Europe who wants to really win favor throughout all of Europe, they go and lead crusades. So it's very much looked at in that perspective. And as fascinating as that is, um, that subject has really been covered extensively. And that's not what we want to look at today. 
we really want to look at this from the Muslim perspective. So let's first look at the Islamic world on the eve of the Crusades. In 1096, the first Crusades come to the Holy Land. Well, what was happening up to that point? We've talked about the disintegration of the Abbasid Caliphate, which really lives on in a ceremonial sense. It doesn't really have power over much of anything. What has arisen in its place, of course, we have the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate, uh, primarily in North Africa, of course, with its capital in Cairo of Egypt, but this has also gone into decline uh, by this point. The Abbasid world is also, of course, racked by many insurgencies, particularly the assassins we've talked about, other Shiite insurgencies within it. But the dominant force, of course, is the Seljuk Turks who have arisen, who have come from the east. They've really stepped into this vacuum and they've seen the, um, the sort of the chaos, the disintegration, and they're trying to reestablish order. Of course, the Seljuks, like most of the other Turks, are very vehemently Sunni and they believe that this is the solution. Uh, we need to reestablish a very strong Sunni doctrinary uh, rule. And so this is what they begin to do. And so technically, although the Seljuks are living under this umbrella of the Abbasid Caliphate and they they keep the Abbasid Caliph, they use him as a figurehead, they trot him out when necessary, his official blessing is very important. It's really the Seljuks who are the growing and dominant power in the eastern part of the Muslim world. In fact, they're doing so well that they have reached into the Levant area, into Palestine and what is now Jordan and Syria. And in fact, they have taken over about half of modern day Turkey. At the very famous Battle of Manzikert, they deliver a decisive uh, defeat to the Byzantine army, which really gives them free reign in most of what is modern-day Turkey. Now, we've been following this Byzantine empire for centuries. I mean, it was once the most powerful empire in the European world, in the Mediterranean world. It was certainly the most powerful Christian state, but we've seen this thing get whittled down very, very slowly. It dies a very slow death, and part of the reason it dies such a slow death is because its capital city, Constantinople, which in its day was the greatest city in the world. We've talked about it has these incredible fortifications, which you can still see parts of them. It's built on this incredibly strategic location. Even today, it's one of the most strategic choke points in the world. And that city just wouldn't fall. We know it was number one on the list of targets for the Umayyad dynasty, uh, for much of the Abbasids. This was the one place they wanted to take over. While they were spreading all the way up into Spain, into Europe, fighting in southern France, the place they really wanted to be was in Constantinople, and they just couldn't do it. They couldn't take it by land. They couldn't take it by sea. And this city just holds out for an incredible period of time. It doesn't fall until the year 1453 under the Ottoman Turks, who were essentially going to be the successors to the Seljuks. But outside of Constantinople, they don't control much, and the Seljuks are taking up what little that they have. And so a shift has occurred in Europe from the time when the Byzantine Empire was the great power. Most of Western Europe was in shambles. It was in the Dark Ages, essentially being ruled by these tribal rulers, these tribal states. 
Well, by now, those tribal states have evolved into some pretty great and powerful empires of their own. Uh, the Franks, the Holy Roman Empire, England has grown, and the Byzantine Empire has become incredibly weak. I mean, yes, they're safe behind their fortifications, but that's about it. And this is the situation that is going to be the spur for the Crusades. We have Western Europe, which has now rebounded. We do have a power struggle going on between the Pope and the various kings about who's really the leader here. But they look to the east and they see uh, what is essentially this weak Byzantine empire on the ropes. It, it's really at the mercy of these Muslims who happen to be Turks. And so now we have powerful Western Europe coming to the aid of its really sick sister over there uh, who's dying slowly. Well, that's a definite shift of power. It's a little bit suspect in terms of its motivations because what the Crusaders do to the Byzantines is generally not very good. In fact, during the Crusades, they will actually sack the city of Constantinople itself. So the purity of their motives is a bit suspect. But this enemy that you're now facing uh, suddenly seems like something that you can handle, whereas, let's say, 300 years ago, it definitely did not. We've also mentioned the situation in Spain several times, but this is another factor in the Crusades because what is known as the Reconquista, the gradual Christian conquest of Iberia from the Muslims has been going on very slowly and this of course is inspiring the Christian leaders throughout Europe to really see this as an example of something that can be done uh, not just in in Spain but in the eastern side. Technically the first crusade goes in 1096 and it's called by the Pope Urban II from uh, an appeal from the Byzantines. He, the Byzantines actually do appeal for help. Now now they expect that their western allies are going to send some troops that the Byzantine Empire can use to help in his defense. That's not what happens. The troops come and they basically stay under their own command uh, from this time on. Ostensibly, they've come to reconquer some Byzantine cities, particularly Antioch, which was recently lost. But the success of the early Crusades leads them to expand the scope of them and to go down into the Holy Land in the recapture of Jerusalem. This was not in the original mission of these forces, but of course this is something that has been in the Christian psyche for a long time. Jerusalem is the most holy city for Christianity um, as well and so they want to take this back. The interesting thing, though, is from the Muslim side, they don't really see these early crusades as anything out of the ordinary. There's been warfare going on constantly. The Seljuks are in constant fighting with the Byzantines. And the first group of crusaders who show up, these become very famous, known as the People's Crusade. They're led by someone called Peter the Hermit. And this is basically a mob. Uh, they have no success and they don't really make much of a dent. The next group, however, is led by a group of Frankish princes, and they actually do have tremendous success against the Seljuk Turks, who of course are not expecting this, who don't see this as anything other than the usual skirmishing that goes on all the time. And it's that success that inspires them to keep up the offensive, not just to take back the Antioch, but to keep going and go all the way to Jerusalem.
From the military side, the forces were really unevenly matched. Of course, the Turks had the numbers. I mean, they're fighting on their home turf. But their Turkish armies were mostly light cavalry. They're mounted bowmen. And of course, this is what they're famous for, coming from Central Asia and like the Mongols who were going to come after them. Now, the core of the Crusader armies were heavily armored knights, and we know this. This is the image we have of the Crusader fighter. And the problem with knights is they're extremely expensive. I mean, it's not something the average person can do. A knight is usually a nobleman who could afford to buy all this armor, and you could only afford to put a few hundred of them in the field. Uh, the largest army would be a thousand or two that you could put together for a short time. Well, the armor was both their greatest strength and their biggest weakness. Of course, it slows you down tremendously. Uh, but in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, if you're a, a bowman with no armor fighting against a heavily metal-armored knight with a sword, uh, you're going to lose. And they do. The Turks... Um, lose against them in individual fighting. But the problem, of course, we're talking about a very hot, arid climate, and so if you have to travel across it in this armor, even if you're just carrying it with you, uh, thirst will often do you in before the enemy can. And this is what we find from most of the Muslim victories of this period come. Now, we, we tend to think that military victories are won by brilliant strategy, but it's very often by isolating the enemy from water sources and uh, watching him die of thirst. And this is the fact that the local Muslim powers, they know the turf. They know the area. They know where the water sources are. Uh, Franks, who are coming from Western Europe, they have no idea. And when they get cut off from the water supplies, it's pretty bad. But of course, the biggest advantage that the Crusaders have is the complete disunity of the Muslim forces. Even when they begin to realize what's going on, when they realize that this is not just a skirmish, and they begin to realize that these people are not Byzantines. And one of the confusing things in the narratives here is that everybody from Western Europe is referred to as a Frank. Now, they, they may or may not be Frenchmen. I mean, they were coming from all over the place. Uh, but the idea is they're not Byzantines. These are outside fighters coming in. So even when they realize this, there's so much disunity in the Muslim world. Yes, uh, they should get together. They should organize. They should unify their command. But the big question is, who is going to lead? And this is going to take quite a while to determine. So we see in all the Muslim chronicles, all the reports that come back from these days, there's always these complaints that, wow, we have overwhelming numbers, but we lose. Uh, the other problem ha we have is that these Turkish military forces, as we've seen them do in Baghdad and other places, uh, they tend to get drunk and carouse in major cities, and uh, they tend to alienate the local populace. And again, we have to look at the big picture versus the small picture. In the big picture of this giant ideological religious battle, uh, of course, all the Christians are going to unite against all the Muslims. But as we've seen in all these conflicts so far, I mean, the reality is how you are treated on a daily basis. So if the people who are there are supposed to relieve you and protect you, I mean, come into your town and they trash the place and they're rowdy and dangerous, uh, you're not that positively inclined to them. You're not necessarily going to support them. So this is what happens in this first major battle, and this is the city of Antioch. 
But you look at it, Antioch today is on the Mediterranean Sea. It's part of Turkey, but geographically it, it really looks like it should be part of Lebanon. Well, the leaders of Antioch, they see the Crusaders coming and they appeal for help to all the Seljuk rulers in the area. Damascus, Aleppo, even Mosul in Iraq. These are all Seljuk princedoms that have their own military. And they all send armies to rescue Antioch, which together greatly outnumbered the Crusaders. But they were so slow in getting there and so discoordinated. But by the time they arrived, the Crusaders have already taken the place. Now they haven't taken it from some great assault. What has happened is there was a gate guard who had been punished by the governor, and so he was disgruntled. And so the Crusaders send out spies and they convince this gate guard to open the gates. The Crusader army comes in and they proceed to massacre the inhabitants. Meanwhile, the largest uh, Muslim army that's coming, and this is from the, the ruler of Mosul, a man named Karbuka, uh, on the way to go to Antioch, he goes off on a side campaign up to the north, which is basically just a waste of time. It means that he won't get there in time. By the time all the different Turkish armies finally get to Antioch, the place is in the hands of the Crusaders. But once they get there, the Turkish leaders start fighting amongst themselves about who's going to be in charge and who's going to have to do the, the dangerous work of attacking the fortifications and who's going to stay back. Because remember, they don't have a unified command. So after days of sneakily withdrawing, what they try and do is one leader tries to you know, start the attack and then let your friends go up and charge the city and you stay back and let them take the brunt of the attack. This goes back and forth until essentially the Muslim armies are depleted and they have to abandon the city and they never really get to make an attack. This failure at Antioch is really typical of every battle that's going to happen. I mean, they are just absolutely not prepared for this crusader uh, invasion. Well, the logical thing would be, well, let's go to the Fatimids. I mean, they are down in Egypt. They're a powerful caliphate. Uh, let's get them. So the cities in the Levant, I mean, they don't really care. They're appealing to everybody for help. And particularly, they've seen what these crusaders do. They may be on a holy war, but what they do when they get to your city is not very holy at all. They kill everybody. So the Fatimids, they do promise aid and they declare a jihad and they do all these wonderful things, but actual troops do not materialize. And so what happens is the Fatimid vizier, again, that's like a prime minister, he appeals to the Byzantine emperor to try and negotiate. And that might have worked. That was probably a successful strategy in the past. But the problem is the Byzantine empire uh, has lost control of these guys. They may have come out there after an appeal from the Byzantines, but they are pretty much on autopilot at this point. And so uh, he's unable to stop them. So oddly enough, this does not spur the Fatimids to action. Eventually, this sort of thing will, when they realize how serious this is and that they have to get their act together, um, they will react. But right now, we're just totally catching all these rulers off guard and they see, I mean, essentially what look like barbarians to them, people who come in and slaughter an entire city, and they look as bad as the Mongols are going to look. And so seeing that, the Fatimids decide rather to go into hiding. Okay, I mean, we don't want any part of this.
So this just opens the door in front of the Crusaders that really the only resistance that they have is local. In the year 1099, the Crusaders take Jerusalem, and this leads to an infamous massacre. It's, it's probably the most uh, infamous event during the entire Crusades. And not only are the Muslims slaughtered, but the Jews of the city are slaughtered, and even the Christians of the city, the ones who are not Roman Catholics, are slaughtered as well, because they're all seen as infidels. Now imagine the irony here. How did these Crusaders get to this area in the first place, they came ostensibly uh, from an appeal from the Byzantine emperor, who of course is the Byzantines, this is the Orthodox Church, this is the headquarters of it, and now they're being slaughtered as well as being seen, they're not real Christians either. And I mean, the stories of the rivers of blood running through the streets, these become quite famous, I mean, it was really a very bloody siege. Now, the Muslim historians, of course, would compare this massacre to the Arab conquest of Jerusalem. Now, this is not really a fair conquest. It's like comparing your best against their worst, but we do this in history all the time. If you remember when the Khalif Omar conquered Jerusalem for the first time, he went to such an extent to protect the Christians there uh, that he refused himself to enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is even today the most holy Christian site in Jerusalem. He said, if I go in there, then that would encourage other people to go in there and someone may go in and do bad things. So he stood outside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and let the Christians hold their prayers there, and then of course he had an actual treaty drawn up that specified religious freedom for the Christians as well. And so this comparison is always going to be made. Uh, but I mean, other things happen. This is not a one-off. The city of Tripoli, which had one of the finest libraries in the Arab world, was destroyed and 100,000 books were burned. Now, you know, burning books never get you a good reputation in history. But this is going to sound a lot like what um, the Mongols are going to do as well. In the city of Ma'ara, uh, Crusaders sources as well. This is not the Muslim sources, but they boast, quote, our troops boiled pagan adults in cooking pots. They impaled children on spits and devoured them grilled, unquote. Okay, so these reports struck fear throughout the Muslim population, um, as they were expected to do. I mean, was there actual cannibalism? People debate this to this day. But these are the Crusaders themselves who are boasting of this. And so this image comes about in the Muslim mind, and you can certainly understand it, not seeing these Crusaders as on a holy mission, but they're essentially as barbarians. I mean, they don't look a whole lot better than the Mongols are going to look. But it's not just the massacres that give the Christians a bad reputation here, although that doesn't tend to do much for anyone's reputation. It was the lifestyle that really uh, shocked the people who got to know them. And the Muslim chroniclers of this time were appalled by the lifestyles of the Europeans. Now, when we think of medieval Europe, uh, one thing you definitely don't think of is cleanliness and hygiene. I mean, we know this to be a pretty filthy time. The Muslims have already found the value of hygiene. In fact, it's part of their culture. Uh, for one thing, we know one of the duties of a Muslim is to pray 
five times a day. And before you pray, you have to do a series of ablutions, these washings where you wash your, your head, your hands, and so forth. In fact, I remember a tour guide in Egypt saying that if you see a Muslim who smells bad, then he's not a good Muslim. Well, that's a little bit harsh. That's not necessarily true. But the fact that you incorporate this ritual, the idea that you need to physically wash yourself several times a day as one of your duties shows that you value hygiene. Uh, this is definitely not going on in the medieval world. In fact, in the medieval world, if you took a bath once a year, uh, that was a lot. This is the reason why most uh, weddings took place in June, because that's when the annual bath would happen. And the reason why brides typically held a bouquet of flowers was not just for a ritual, it was kind of to get the smell off them. Uh, the saying about throwing out the baby with the bath water, I mean, that's something you definitely could do. After the whole family had taken their uh, annual bath, you could easily lose a baby in there. So they are appalled by the, I mean, the stench, the, the physical lack of hygiene that they see amongst the Crusaders. But also, we Islam is the world leader in medicine at this time, as we've discussed, and that is another reason they understand the importance of hygiene for present, preventing disease, which is something that Europe has no idea about. And so Muslim doctors do go to these crusader states. Like I said, there is a lot of interaction. Once the fighting is done, uh, there's still a lot of interaction. And remember, most of the citizens in a place like Jerusalem are still Muslim, so there are Muslim doctors going in, uh, to help these folks and they report being just shocked by what kind of medicine quote medicine is being used uh, by the Christians at this time and remember this is basically superstitions that are being practiced something with things that have really no medical value uh, for example if you have a headache what we do is we drill a hole into your skull to release the demons which of course inevitably uh, kills the patient Remember, Islam also has a very elaborate legal system by this point. But the Crusaders are still using these things that have become famous during the Dark Ages, these trials by ordeal, right? such as the notorious practice of throwing a suspect in water and the idea that an innocent per person would sink to the bottom, but someone who was a demon or someone who had witchcraft would float uh, to the, the surface and of course that's the reason anyone would commit a crime is because they're possessed by some sort of demon and so we throw you in the water and if you sink to the bottom you're innocent dead but innocent if you float to the top uh, you're alive but guilty so we kill you also but there's the idea of proving your innocence by reaching your hand into boiling water and pulling out an iron bar from the bottom of the pot. And if your hand gets all scarred up, that means you're innocent. If it doesn't, that means you're a, a witch and so forth. This is what they are seeing when they go into these cities. And it's appalling to those who have a, an elaborate legal code. Now, in reality through much of Western Europe, particularly in the cities, these old customs had died out. I mean, they realized that these were, you know, barbarian customs and codified law and courts were beginning to replace them. But the people who are going on crusades are not really a cross-section of European society. They are extremely religiously zealous and in some sense, they're the worst that Christian society has to offer in terms of their superstition, their belief in witchcraft, and so forth. 
And this just reinforces the idea that these people are barbarians, which I think is important to remember because we tend to have an idea of the Crusades in our culture. I mean, we pretty much think of them as a bad thing that shouldn't happen. But we think of these people as being driven by these pure ideas and being very noble, but just going a little bit overboard. But the Muslims are going to see these crusaders in pretty much the same light. They're going to see the Mongols who come a century later. Now, just because they terrify you doesn't mean that's enough for your leaders to get their act together and do something about it. As we said, this strikes fear throughout the Muslim population, but if you think this spurs them on to action, you're wrong. Anyone familiar with the military or military history can tell you if, if the only way to avoid destruction and slaughter is for military leaders to put their egos aside, uh, then you're probably going to get destruction and slaughter. And in fairness, if you've been operating in this mode for a long time with really little individual princedoms with their own armies, basically being independent. Yeah, everyone can agree that we need to unify, we need to present a united front, but the logistics, the coordination of making that happen, uh, it's really not easy. And when those people arrive, uh, they're going to be famous. Salahadin being the greatest of them all. But Salahadin, even if he had been around at this particular time, he wouldn't have been able to get all these forces together. So what do you do if you happen to be in one of these cities, Muslim cities in the Levant, in Palestine at this time, when you realize no one is coming to help you, and even if they do, they're not going to be any help at all, uh, what do you do? Well, the best thing you can do is try and surrender and try and get the best terms that you can. And so they do. They go out and they deal with the crusader princes. They make terms, they make agreements, they get promises of safety, and the results vary. Now, it would be easy to say that they're all lies, and as soon as the Crusaders get in, they slaughter everybody. That happens in some cities. In some cities, it doesn't. Some cities where they make a, an agreement, the agreement is upheld, and of course, there's all sorts of results in between. But in any case, the idea that these guys are knights, that they have this code of chivalry and you can trust them on their word is certainly not the case. So again, remember, President Bush is on the White House lawn declaring another one of these. Now, this is not what he means, but this is what everybody thinks of. When he declares another crusade, people think of Jerusalem in 1099, rivers of blood on the streets, children being sacrificed on the altar, of them boasting of children being grilled and eaten. That's what people see. That's not what the president meant, but I mean, if he was looking for a word, he could have chosen a lot better ones. Okay, well, as we look at it today, we tend to think of the Crusades as an occupation of Palestine, and that's basically what they ended up with. But the intent appears to be much wider. And like we said, these crusaders came in initially with this mission to support the Byzantines. When they start to have success, I mean, they were taking places over pretty easily. It just expands very widely. So we see that Frankish forces continued on to Damascus, 
which Damascus only survived by surrendering a lot of the surrounding territory to the invaders. They kept the city, but they gave them a lot of territory. See, another crusader force attacked from Turkey into Iraq uh, with the target of Baghdad. Again, they didn't take over Baghdad, but that's uh, where, where they were headed. And part of the reason for this is not only that they don't have any clearly defined limits, but also the people leading these crusades are essentially rulers. They're princes, and a prince needs a princedom. And they're kind of running out of these in Europe, but when you conquer territory, that becomes your princedom. And the evidence of that are all these castles that are built. So you have a lot of these princes who are taking part in the wars. Remember again the kind of soldiers that the Christians have. They have knights, and a knight by definition is not your typical drafty soldier. A knight is a, basically a nobleman, someone who can afford to have this very expensive uh, kit of fighting materials, this armor, and who eventually needs to have a princedom uh, once he does that, needs his own feudal turf. So as they're expanding, as they're finding out that the enemy is just easy pickings, I mean, you can take their cities without any problem. So all these different princes and nobles who are involved in this thing think, hey, I can, I can go over there and, and take a princedom here. Right? That looks like good fertile land. I can build a nice castle there. And they do, and they have tremendous success with this. So this idea of the Crusades being this, hey, we have to go save Jerusalem from the hands of the infidels. I mean, yeah, that is the appeal that is used. That is the propaganda used to get people to join and particularly get people to give money to support these. But what's actually going on in the ground is we're seeing uh, an expanding Western Europe and they're finding easy areas to conquer. And they're, yeah, they're taking them from people that they think are the infidels and so it's justified. But we really have to see the Crusades as the beginning of this process that is going to take European armies to the Americas, to, um, to Africa, to Asia, in this age of colonization. It's kind of beginning right here. Well, of course, if you're a Muslim at this time, that's not the way you want to see it. You don't want to see this as the opening phase in the beginning of Western domination of the planet. Uh, you want to see this as a one-off. This is an invasion that we need to defeat and get back on track. But as we've seen in the Muslim world at this time, there is just no unity, there's no coordination. And so these are people who are desperately in need of a leader who will come and unite them and fight against this invasion. And that leader is still to come. And that's who and what we're going to talk about in future episodes. So I hope that you will stay with us as we talk about the next installment of the Crusades. And again, thank you for your kind comments and your reviews. Uh, please, if you can, take a moment to go out and give us a good review. I mean, we currently have a straight five-star average on reviews, but we need more. Our statistics show that there are about 10,000 listeners to this podcast, and so the more reviews and stars we get from you, that helps keep us on these platforms. From Please go out and take a moment to do that. In any case, we hope to see you next time for our next discussion of the Crusades. Thank you again for your kind attention. Shukran jazilin wa ma salamah.